We're going to cover three chapters. And some of you are saying, how is that even possible? Usually you take too long in one chapter. Be amazed. It's going to be tremendous. Now you're going to be disappointed because I oversold it. Exodus chapter 36 is called Doers of the Word, and you'll see why by the end. In chapter 35, so far in the book of Exodus, what we saw is that God not only gave instructions on how to build the tabernacle, but then he said, I'm I'm asking you to bring an offering. And this offering would include the things that they would need in order to build the tabernacle. If you're going to build something, you've got to get materials, you've got to get a workforce, you need plans, right? And so God's provision in chapter 35, he's already given his plans. He's uh, given the stuff, the stuff that it takes to make the practical, physical place where God would be worshipped. And he's done that through man's willingness to give out of his abundance, or in some cases, out of their lack. Uh, Man is called to give to God many times, and yet what I find in chapter 35 is though he told them to give, he commanded it, we don't command each other to do much, do we? And if we do, we get a little frazzled. But God commanded them, I want you to give to this cause. And then they all departed from Moses after the command was given, and those who were stirred by God with their free will gave to God as they were led. They were freed up to worship by giving. And so God enables certain people, Bezalel and Aholiab, and it says other artisans, to build this tabernacle, this structure, all the ornamental pieces, all the physical structural pieces, all of the, uh, the, we'll get into that. But without God's enabling, it's not going to be built. It's not just something where you can get plans and build it off watching a YouTube video. It was something that had to be not by my strength, not by my wisdom. It has You have to be enabled by God to do the work of God. And if you're not, it's not going to be God's work. It's going to be yours. And so man's willingness is super important. They're willing hearts. And so in chapter 36, in verse 1 through 7, which we looked at two weeks ago, we find that workers were given wisdom and understanding to build all that the Lord commanded. Not some of it, Not more than that, but just the amount he's called them to build. And so he supplied materials. And these materials were given by people who were stirred by God. What's interesting is that the world says, unless you make people do something, they won't do it. But what God says is if you set people free to do something, and if you stir them up the right way, they won't just give, they'll give more than is needed. And we saw that in chapter 35. And by the way, God's work is always, it was in the past and it is today, it's always accomplished through people who have willing hearts. And so in verse 3 through 7, we see that as they were set free to give, they gave more than was needed. As a matter of fact, for the first time in church history ever, they had a command to give and Moses had to say, okay, okay, that's enough. Stop giving. Would it to be that if, if God called us to do something, we would do more than he asked? Not just what he asked, but more than he asked. And really that comes out of thankfulness. Grateful hearts are generous. And so in verse 1 through 7, we saw that God provided. He provided skilled workers, enabled by his spirit, and he provided this stuff. 
So I want to point out the same thing is true in the New Testament, by the way. We are God's workers. We are given wisdom and understanding to build his church. Not just me, not just leaders in the church, but we're all called to build his church. And the materials that are given by people are stirred by God if we do it correctly. God's kingdom is always furthered by people who work in conjunction with God willingly. God doesn't force us to do squat. And that's why, by and large, many people, especially in America, we consume rather than produce, right? If you want to think about that from a uh, socioeconomical thing, we, we consume things. As a matter of fact, I was kind of laughing about this the other day, that we have a class called, uh, was it Consumer Sciences? And it's supposed to be what home economics is now referred to as consumer science. The problem is, is that home economics, you don't just consume things. You also have to make things. You consume the meal, but somebody has to produce the meal. And so in, in the same way, that's how the church is. We're not supposed to just be consumers. We're supposed to be involved in the process of serving. And so God supplies more than enough to do his work. He always has. He always will. And I'm watching it happen even today. And so in Exodus chapter 36, they're going to build the tabernacle. And what they start with in verse 8 is the outward, the covering. And so it says, all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle, and then it lists out, it made ten curtains woven of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread, artistic designs of cherubim, they made them. Now, some of you are going to be mad at me, but I'm not going to read the next three chapters. I want you to read them on your own. But what you'll find as you read through them is that they directly mirror what was written in Exodus chapter 25 through Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus 25 through 30, it was what to build, how to build it, what materials to use, who's to build it. And in Exodus chapter 36 through 38, it's then they built it. God said build it, then they built it. And he lists out specifically what they built, and we'll get to the why towards the end of the message. So we start with, they built the outer covering. And this outer covering was the tent, if you will, of the tabernacle, the skin. What you would see from the outside, verse 8 through 19. Verse 20 through 30, it's the frame of the tabernacle. Now, there's a lot of detail listed in here about how they built it and how they were supposed to build it. And if you want to catch the details and how they point to Jesus, I would encourage you to either go to our website, avchapel.com, and listen to Exodus 25 through 30, or go to our Facebook page and try to watch the messages that way. Or if you use Apple, uh, what is it, podcasts, you can go on there and you can find us there. That's where all our previous messages are. But that being said, the tabernacle frame is what's the structure. You, you can't build a tent with just material. You also have to have something to hold the material up. And so they built the tabernacle frame, the pillars. And then they built the outer structure, the poles that went crossways. They go parallel to the earth, but perpendicular to the pillars. And that's what keeps it from falling over. Um, and then they built the veil. Verse 35 through 36 of this chapter, they build this veil that it, it's made of four different colors of thread that we studied point to Jesus Christ. Think about it. Four threads. 
four gospel accounts. And, and it points out, each gospel account points out a different aspect of the character of Jesus Christ. And then the veil also is the boundary through which only one person can walk, and that's the high priest. He's the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies. And I'll show you a picture here in a minute. But then verse 37 through 38, we have the making of the tabernacle door. And this will be shown better if I just show you the picture. So here we have the tabernacle. You see the priest standing out front, which faces the east. And you would enter through that veil. And I'm going to get out my cool red pointy laser thingy. You see the veil right here is where they would have to enter through. Don't look at my bald spot. Don't laugh. You guys are doing it. Stop. Got your attention. Okay. So this is the covering. This is the ram skin dyed red. This is what we debated about whether it was made from badger skin, which is waterproof, or one translator said it was actually porpoise skin. Sorry for you dolphin lovers. Um, but either way, it was waterproof. And then on the inside, you see this layer here in the top and on the sides. It's all made of those four colors that are also built into the veil that has cherubim on the inside of it. And so these things were all built, including the frame, the pillars, and the what they called the bases, uh, and then also these rings and these rods that go through. That's the outer frame. And so all of these things are covered in gold, at least the frame is, and those are the things that they're building. So this is the structure. This is the tent. These are the doorways. So then in chapter 37, see, you didn't think I could do it. It's going quicker than you thought. They build the implements that go on the inside of the tabernacle. So they build them, verse 1 through 9, they build the ark. Now the ark is not just what we would think of like the ark in Genesis early on when uh, Noah builds an ark. Instead, this is a box, essentially. It's very ornamental. And on top of it is this thing called a mercy seat. And it's where the blood for atonement would be placed once a year by the high priest in order to deal with the sins of the people of Israel. But then on top of the mercy seat is two cherubim facing each other, holding up their wings, much like the cherubim that guarded the way to the Garden of Eden. They had swords drawn in, in every direction. So the, the cherubim were there to guard the way to the tree of life, to keep them from partaking of it. But here in the tabernacle, we have a, a smaller scaled down version where God can meet with man or man can come and meet with God. But the only way he is to do it is to come through one gate into the courtyard, then through the, and we'll get there in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself in my brain. But the ark is there inside the Holy of Holies. And it's above the ark in between the two cherubim where God would manifest his physical, invisible presence there. And so they make the ark a very important piece, but they start at the Holy of Holies and they come outward using a precious metal called gold. And then they build the table of showbread. And this was, if you walked into the tabernacle, if you think about the picture we were looking at, it was to the right. And on the right-hand side, there would be a table made of gold and on top of it would be sitting 12 unleavened loaves of bread, flatbread. And those flatbread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were represented inside of this holy place. And 
it also symbolizes the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. On the left-hand side of that room, directly opposite the room, is the gold lampstand. And it is made up of hammered, pure gold. And on the base of it is this reservoir of olive oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. And that olive oil comes up through the center, which Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And it goes out to six branches that all at the top have light coming from them. That lights up the tabernacle. Interestingly enough, if you look at the picture here in a minute, you'll notice no windows in the tabernacle. Well, how are we going to have any light to serve in this tabernacle? The lampstand, which again is a type of the light of the world. Then, verse 25 through 28, we have the incense altar. And it sits there right before the Holy of Holies, outside of the veil, with the uh, incense and the anointing oil sitting there and the incense altar is a picture of prayer where we see the incense being burned up and the the smoke rising up before the 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 veil and and in the presence of god and so again for those of you that are picture people here's a picture on the left hand side we have the the lampstand and again i want to point out this fact because i think it's very just learned it this year but at the bottom, this is where they would fill it with olive oil. And then that olive oil would feed up on the wicks to the top. Now, Jesus said, I am the vine. He's directly connected to the Father. And we are the branches. Each one of these branches is connected to the main trunk. We are branches from Jesus Christ. And each one of us, if you think about it, the Bible says that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. So tied into him, we light up the world with the truth. Here we have the Ark of the Covenant. And here we have the Ark itself with two rods to carry it. They were not to touch it. And then there's the mercy seat where the blood would be applied. And then here are the two cherubim. And in this presence right here is where the Lord would make himself known to the nation of Israel. And they would be able to atone for their sin in the presence of God without death. Here we have the altar of incense that was right outside of the Holy of Holies. On the back side of this curtain, this, the ark. But outside the curtain is this place, the altar of incense. Now, this is a picture of Jesus Christ in a specific way, and that way is this. Where is Jesus right now in heaven? He's at the right hand of God the Father. What is he doing? He's making intercession for you and I. So his prayers, if you will, we get to pray outside of the veil. And that veil is Jesus Christ. And when we pray, he receives our prayers. And then he prays to the Father for us. And I don't know about you guys, but God is holy. And if there's anything that I want between me and God himself, un, untethered, it's, it's Jesus. He is the compassionate one. He is the one that's between us and God's judgment and salvation. And he is still living to intercede for us. If you don't think so, read Romans chapter 8, where it says that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit makes intercession for you and I. And so that's a picture of that. But that being said, here's the table of showbread. And on it, we have all these implements made out of gold. So... 
chapter 38. Hey, we're making some progress. Chapter 38, they start to build the implements outside of the tent. So we saw the tabernacle itself being built, and then we went to the implements inside of the tabernacle, and now we have the implements on the outside of the building. Now the implements outside of the building are made of bronze. The ones on the inside are made of gold. And so you see as we get further away from the presence of God, the metals become less and less costly, less and less pure. And so in verse 1 through 7 of chapter 38, we see the building, the making of the altar of burnt offering. And then in verse 8, we see the bronze laver, and I'll explain those to you in a minute. And then in verse 9 through 20, we see this outer court that goes all the way around the tabernacle, and, and it's all sectioning off this holy place, keeping keeping people at a distance from God so that when they approach God, it's a certain way. So here's the picture. So now we have this outer courtyard, and this outer courtyard is made of white linen all the way around so that somebody wouldn't accidentally touch the tabernacle. Well, what's the way into this outer courtyard? This door right here. There's one way. Imagine that. Christianity used to be called the way, singular. This is one way into the presence of God. It's always been the case, Old Testament and New. So we see this courtyard that goes all the way around, and all these pedestals that the pillars stand upon are made of bronze, the metal that symbolizes judgment. So we enter in through the judgment gate, and the first place that we can get to before we ever get to the presence of God is the place of sacrifice. There has to be sacrifice made in order to be allowed into the presence of God. And so they would offer their animals, burnt sacrifice, they would offer grain offerings on this altar. They would spill the blood of the animal, and then they would burn it up as a whole burnt offering, and then they would take the blood into the Holy of Holies through this way. Now, before you can leave the altar where the sacrifice is made, you have to get to this bronze birdbath-looking thing. Kind of looks like a birdbath, but it's not. This is called the bronze laver. And it's not so important what it, the, the laver itself. Actually, Scripture doesn't even give us dimensions on how big to make it. But that being said, what's inside of it is what matters. Now, Jesus is our sacrifice, right? The only way we can come to the Father is through His sacrifice. And He cleanses us by what? Water. And so this water, they would before they would ever enter in to serve, they would wash their hands before they ever went in to serve God. But the only way into the tabernacle is through the tabernacle door. Again, with those four threads that point us to Jesus. But more than talking about the threading and the, the door itself, Jesus is the door. He calls himself that in John. There's five pillars outside of the door. And the number five in the Bible stands for grace. It's grace alone that saves through faith. God's unmerited, undeserved favor. And that's what holds up the door to our salvation is God's grace. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You, you can't do a thing to make yourself pleasing in the sight of the Lord. It takes the sacrifice of a perfect spotless lamb. It takes washing by the water of the word. 
then it takes entering in by the door. But these pillars of grace are covered in gold, and yet the foundation of them, these little bases, are made from bronze. Purity and judgment mixed together. And so as they enter into the place of service, then you have... um, then you have the candle stand. Then you have the table of showbread. Then you have the altar of incense, prayer, and eating the word, and then being enlightened by the Lord. And so all of those things point us to Jesus. But I want you to take just a minute to look at the tabernacle. If you're walking through the wilderness, you come out into the desert, and you see this tent. It kind of looks like, you know, and this isn't me trying to be unholy by any stretch of the matter but if we walked out upon this and we didn't see the gold pillars or anything on the inside what would you think it's just some shanty out in the woods it's just some tent some sojourner that lives out there Jesus Christ when people saw him walking on the earth they didn't see anything glorious about him he was just a man actually Isaiah writes that there was no form or comeliness that we should desire him you might walk up on this tent and be like, let's get away from this tent. We don't know who lives there. Matter of fact, if you drive out towards Flatwoods, there's this random tent along the, the back road. And every time I drive by there, I'm like, that probably is not safe. We probably need to go. But that being said, that's just me judging by man's standards, right? Because the glory of the tabernacle was not the outward appearance. It was the inward beauty. And I'm not talking about gold or silver talking about Jesus Christ and his character and that metal that gold that purity reflects the character of Jesus Christ and so that being said let's go to chapter 38 verse 21 it says there this is the inventory of the tabernacle the tabernacle of the testimony which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar son of Aaron the priest And Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So, what I want you to take away from these chapters that we kind of skimmed over, and again, I want to encourage you to read them, is that these men and all those who were gifted made everything according to what was commanded by Moses. And so, verse 23, With him was Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer of weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine linen. All the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is the gold of the offering, was 29 talents. This is the weight of the gold. 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents, 1,000 775 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary a bika for each man that is half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary so every man that was 20 years old or older in the nation of Israel had to bring a half of a shekel of silver and this is what it added up to enough for every person for everyone included in the number numbering from the 20 years old and above for 603,550 men so that's a lot of silver. And from the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, 100 sockets or bases 
from the hundred talents, one talent for each socket. And then from 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals, and made bands for them. Now the offering of bronze was 70 talents, 2,400 shekels, and with it he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for the altar, and all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the court all around, the bases for the court gate, all the pegs for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. All right, we all get it? Let's go home, right? Okay, well, what are we supposed to take away from this? Because I don't believe that the Lord puts things in here uh, lackadaisically. So let's first look at the cost. The cost for the labor had to be insurmountable. I don't know about you guys, but if I get something built at my house, I ask the person that's going to build it how much it's going to cost. And he estimates how much it's going to cost based on past experience. But how do you estimate building something and the amount of hours it's going to take when it's never been built before? Nobody had ever carved cherubim or an altar or a mercy seat or any of these pieces before. So I believe that the labor was probably an enormous amount. And it's infigurable. Probably made that word up. Blue, purple, scarlet thread, and fine linen. We don't know how much. We just know that they needed enough, and they knew they had too much, so they told them to stop. But then we do know the weight of the gold. And I googled the cost of gold this week. I guarantee it's changed since then. But as of March 16th, 2,200 pounds of gold, which is what it adds up to be, was about $67,439,136 worth of gold. That's an, an exorbitant amount of cost. The silver, 7,545 pounds. And as of last week, about $3,033,700. This is U.S. dollars. Bronze, 5,310 pounds about $8,496. So as you come away from the presence of the Lord, the cost of the metal becomes less. But that being said, let's look at the cost overall. $70 million, and that's just what we know what the cost of it was. Now, in their day, it was probably different. But that being said, that's an exorbitant amount of money. So if we have $70 million or so, let's build our own tabernacle, right? What's interesting is when we think about building a building, we always look at the cost per square foot. Am I right? And so uh, how big, as long as it's a huge building, it doesn't cost that much. But the problem is, is if you start right here and you go to the back wall, that's about the length of the tabernacle. If you want to know how wide it is, it's about from the center to about two to three seats over here and two to three seats over here. It's not large. It's barely a double wide. Seventy million dollars without including labor or any of the other materials like ram skins dyed red and the acacia wood and all these things and so what's the point well the cost for our redemption was way more than 70 million dollars what do we value we value things that we can get money for right but we've not been redeemed with money and we'll find that out gold by the way in the Bible stands for deity or purity. Items inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies that typify Jesus Christ. They're made of gold. 
Silver is the metal that stands for redemption. The cost to buy us back for the cost of our sin. Buy us back from the slavery. If you were enslaved and someone could buy you out of slavery, that's the cost they would have to pay in order to bring you out of the hands of your current owner. 70 million plus or minus, right? Do you think anybody would pay that for you? Jesus paid more than that. But notice that the cost for redemption, the half a shekel apiece that everybody brought in, added up to this amount of money. But at the same time, that silver that redeemed them is the foundation for the tabernacle frame. It's the foundation for our salvation. And at the same time, it was what the hooks and the loops were made on the frame to hold up the tent itself. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle. And so redemption is what holds it all together. His body was hung up, if you will, and held up, if, with you, if you will, for our redemption. If you ever want, have this question in your mind, who killed Jesus? It was me. It was my sin. But it was also his willingness to go to the cross to pay for my sin. He didn't think it was too costly. He was willing the whole way. He calculated the cost, I guarantee you. Ephesians says that before the foundation of the earth, he chose you to be saved. And so, also, the medal of bronze stands for judgment. Without judgment, without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal of sin. And so the foundation for the door, the altar, the wash basin, we can't be cleansed without Jesus' judgment can't. Uh, the foundation for the out, or outer court wall that keeps us from getting too close without coming the right way. The pegs that hold up the tabernacle in the outer court, they're all made out of bronze. Don't you think it's interesting that pegs that would be nailed into the ground are made of judgment metal? And at the same time, when Jesus was judged on the cross, those pegs of judgment were put through his hands, inviting us in. And so, the cost of our redemption can be seen. John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Just like that tabernacle dwelt in the midst of the nation of Israel. That word there is dwelt, is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He put on a tent and we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But then in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that in Christ, in the tabernacle, they would have their redemption. In Christ, in Him, we have redemption, and we have great and precious promises promised to us. Look at verse uh, 3 through 14, and I want you to notice a phrase. A phrase you'll get tired of hearing it, it's in there so much. In Him. So every time you hear in him, think in the tabernacle, because that's what it was about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him, in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, to himself according to the good pleasure of his will 
to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in him, in the beloved. In him, this is what we have, redemption. That's what we just looked at. Through his blood, though, not through silver, not through gold, not through a beautiful tabernacle. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather in excuse me, he might gather together in one all things in him, which both are in heaven and are on earth in him. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So outside of him, we have no inheritance. Inside of him, we have everything that he wants for us. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ, in him, should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, if you're not tired of hearing it yet, in him you also trusted. Have you trusted in him? Or are you trusting in something else? If you trusted in something else, it will be proven in the fact that whatever you've trusted in, it won't save you. It won't give you comfort. It won't give you peace. It's not going to do what you think it will do. It's not going to fulfill its promise. So in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So in him have redemption. That's my point. First Peter chapter 1 verse 17. We have our redemption in Jesus Christ. He says, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves, Christians, throughout the time of your stay here on earth in fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing this, if you know this, you'll conduct your stay here in the fear of the Lord. He says, knowing this, you are not redeemed with corruptible things. And then he lists out corruptible things. And what does he list? Gold and silver. What did we just talk about? Gold and silver. So our redemption is not like the Old Testament where they were redeemed by going to this place made of beautiful metals. But then he goes on in verse 21. Sorry. He says, You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, verse 18, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I want to ask this question. Do you think that Jesus' blood is worth more than $70 million in gold? If somebody offered you $70 plus million and said, all you got to do is forsake Christ, would you? That's a tough question. 
if you're really honest, that's a tough question. Because, man, in $70 million, I could fix all my problems, right? But the reality is, is that his blood is worth more than that in reality, eternally. $70 million won't save you in any which way. It might make your life a little better temporarily, but it might make it harder, too. The blood of Christ will always make things better when applied to your life personally. And so, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are not in riches, but they're in God. And so, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So Jesus is the tabernacle, right? But Jesus is better than the tabernacle, right? But now, we are the tabernacle. And I'll show you that because in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, who is at Ephesus as a pastor, speaking to the the church there. And he says to Timothy, These things I write to you, verse 14, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is not the tabernacle anymore. He says, Which is the church of the living God. And the church of the living God is made up of people. And this church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So how do you know that God exists? Well, you see the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? That's how they would know that he was there. Because he inspired it, he built it using people, and that's where they would meet with him. But where do we go now? We go to the house of the living God. Is that this building? No. Now there's a time where we can go worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and it doesn't matter what mountain you're on, because Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we are the pillar and the ground of the faith when we're attached to him. And so we are the visible representation of the the church, the, the house of God on earth. Not a building, not a place, but a people set aside for that very purpose. You and I, if we are in Christ, we are also Christ's body. And it's a great mystery, but it's the truth. And so, the cost of our redemption. So, why is he mentioning all these things we just didn't read the second time? Why would he detail by detail give all the, not instructions now, but the details of what they built? And I'd like to point out that chapter 25 through 30 of Exodus, God instructed the Israelites how and what to build the tabernacle, right? But then in verse 36 through 38, the Lord, through the pen of Moses, meticulously records the details of their obedience to build everything according to his instructions. He pointed all of this out so that we could see not only did they hear what he said to do, but they did it. And so their obedience, while it doesn't save them, their obedience will be a part of his plan to reveal himself to all mankind through the nation of Israel. And in the same token, God keeps a written record of our obedience to do what he has shown us personally. The Israelites, their peace 
was to give, it was to build, it was to serve in the tabernacle, it was to follow all of the laws to reveal God to the world. I praise God we don't have to do that. I praise God that we don't have to build a structure and move it around the desert. I praise God that we don't have to make sacrifices constantly. But we do have a peace. In James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, it says this. It says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a person observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. You look in the mirror to see what's wrong so you can do something about it. And yet many of us as believers even would read the word, look in the mirror, and not do anything about it. So he says there, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so the temptation would be to go, hey, I heard instructions from God, so I'm good. I heard his voice. But hearing his voice and doing what his voice says are two different things, aren't they? Actually, in uh, John, in chapter 13, in verse 12, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he had just washed their feet. It says, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and he sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Of course, they'd be like, well, yeah, you washed our feet. You did what our slaves do. You did what the lowest slave of the household would do. But what's the point? And Jesus says, you call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord, and you say, well, because I am those things. I am your Lord, and I am your teacher. He says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So the command from Jesus is to receive from him what he's going to do for them. Remember, Peter said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if you won't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. So let Jesus serve you. Let Which sounds weird, right? We're supposed to be servants of the Most High God. But until he's been our sacrifice, he served us in that way. Until he's washed us, he's served us in that way. How can we ever know what it looks like to go and serve those he's called us to serve? He says, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, wonderful. But blessed are you if you do them. I don't know about you guys, but God has instructed me to do a lot of things. And I'm ashamed to say that there are many things that he's instructed me to do that I have yet to do. And many of you might be frustrated in your walk with the Lord. Why don't I have any power in my walk? Why, why, why am I not able to witness? Why am I not able to share what God's done for me? And many times we've overcomplicated it. But the Christian life is this. Receive from Jesus and go do for others what Jesus has done for us. If you can do that, if you can do the one thing he's shown you today, you're going to show Jesus to the world. 
you're going to represent him properly. So I would ask you this morning, don't be frustrated. If there's one thing that you took from today's passage, go out and exercise it. Put feet to what you heard from him. I'm not talking about my stupid stories or my silly jokes. Really take what God speaks to you as an individual and just simply respond by doing likewise. It's that simple. And it takes away frustration and it restores true joy. Because if you've had your feet washed by Jesus, you want to wash other people's feet because you recognize your unworthiness. And I would ask you today, are you someone today who has never had his feet washed by Jesus? And I don't mean we're going to get lined up and we're all going to wash each other's feet. That's not all I'm saying. Some of you got creeped out at that, even, at that thought. But what I'm saying is that if Jesus has been your sacrifice, go and sacrifice for someone else. And when they ask you why, tell them because Jesus did it for me. If you've been washed by Jesus, use your actions to wash someone else. And when they ask you, why would you do that for me? Tell them it's because Jesus did it for me. So I want to do it for you because I know how wonderful it is to be loved by him. And I want you to recognize that you are too. So Father God, we thank you for the grace of God shown in the tabernacle. We thank you for the provision of God and the ways of God and the plans of God revealed through the word of God. But Father, the things that you call us to do many times, we cannot do on our own. Things like loving our enemies, forgiving those who have spitefully used us, But Father, it's not by our own efforts that you've called us to live this Christian life. You said, I'm going to the Father, but it's better that I go because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to fill you, to go alongside you, to come upon you, to overshadow you, just like the Spirit overshadowed Mary so that she could conceive of the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you overshadow us with your Holy Spirit so that you could conceive through us the work of God in this world. Lord, you are the head. We are subservient to you. We are under you. Make us your hands and feet. Help us to do the things and say the things that your hands and your feet and your mouth and your actions would do. Lord, we want to be used by you. So help us, Lord. Help us to represent you. Help us to love you more and to love other people the way that you've loved us. And would you change the face of our culture through simple obedience. In Jesus' name.